When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Another World Audiobooks. So if you're just tuning in, this is like your first episode, I just want to give kind of maybe a reintroduction, maybe uh, kind of remind everybody what this is all about. I called it Another World Audiobooks because I personally, I love books, but I don't feel like I have enough time to read, and I don't feel like I have enough money to spend on the extremely expensive subscription services. So that's why I created Another World Audiobooks, is free, high-quality audiobooks that allow you to escape to that other world if you don't have the time to sit down and read and you enjoy audiobooks, it gives you the chance to enjoy that fiction and that escape to another world without having to pay an arm and a leg to do it. So thank you guys for tuning in and for sharing the podcast. This really is just a labor of love. It's just kind of me just recording the audiobooks and getting it out there for you. So you guys are my best advertisements out there. If you can share the podcast, tell somebody else about Another World Audiobooks. That's how the word uh, spreads and and this grows. And, uh, you know, like I've said in a couple past episodes, I'm really looking to expand uh, the team. So if there's somebody that you know, or if you are somebody who is interested in helping me with editing podcasts, I'll be able to put out more content and uh, focus more on the narration. So if you're more on the technical side of things and you want to get involved in that, please let me know. Uh, you can send me an email at anotherworldaudiobooks at gmail.com if you want to volunteer to help me edit the podcast. If you don't have the technical skills, but you still want more content from me, then uh, the best way to help out with that is just go to patreon.com slash anotherworldaudiobooks and you can support the podcast there. Or you can click through any of the Amazon links on the blog, anotherworldaudiobooks.wordpress.com. So just want to throw that out there. Hope you guys enjoy the story today. It uh, is getting just better and better. So it kind of shifts gears here and moves into a little bit of the backstory for the murder that we've just been reading about. So hope you enjoy. Without further ado, I give you a study in Scarlet. Chapter 7 Light in the Darkness The intelligence with which the straw greeted us was so momentous and so unexpected that we were all three fairly dumbfounded. Gregson sprang out of his chair and upset the remainder of his whiskey and water. I stared in silence at Sherlock Holmes, whose lips were compressed and his brows drawn down over his eyes. Stangerson, too, he muttered. The plot thickens. It was quite thick enough before, grumbled Lestrade, taking a chair. I seem to have dropped into a sort of council of war. Are you, are you sure of this piece of intelligence? stammered Gregson. I have just come from his room, said Lestrade. I was the first to discover what had occurred. We have been hearing Gregson's view of the matter, Holmes observed. Would you mind letting us know what you have seen and done? I have no objection, Lestrade answered, seating himself. I freely confess that I was of the opinion that Stangerson was concerned at the death of Drever. This fresh development has shown me that I was completely mistaken. Full of the one idea, I set myself to find what had become of the secretary. 
They had been seen together at Eastern Station about half-past eight on the evening of the third. At two in the morning, Drebber had been found in the Brixton Road. The question which confronted me was to find out how Stangerson had been employed between 8.30 and the time of the crime, and what had become of him afterwards. I telegraphed to Liverpool, giving a description of the man, and warning them to keep a watch upon the American boats. I then set to work calling upon all the hotels and lodging houses in the vicinity of Easton. You see, I argued that if Drebber and his companion had become separated, the natural course of the latter would be to put up somewhere in the vicinity for the night, and then to hang about the station again next morning. They would be likely to agree on some meeting place beforehand, remarked Holmes. So it proved. I spent the whole of yesterday evening in making inquiries entirely without avail. This morning I began very early, and at eight o'clock I reached Halliday's private hotel in Little George Street. On my inquiry as to whether a Mr. Stangerson was living there, they at once answered me in the affirmative. "'No doubt you are the gentleman whom he was expecting,' they said. "'He has been waiting for a gentleman for two days.' "'Where is he now?' I asked. "'He's upstairs in bed. He wished to be called at nine. "'I will go up and see him at once,' I said. "'It seemed to me that my sudden appearance might shake his nerves and lead him to say something unguarded.' The Boots volunteered to show me the room. It was on the second floor, and there was a small corridor leading up to it. The Boots pointed out the door to me, and was about to go downstairs again when I saw something that made me feel sickish, in spite of my twenty years' experience. From under the door there curled a little red ribbon of blood, which had meandered across the passage and formed a little pool along the skirting at the other side. I gave a cry, which brought the Boots back. He nearly fainted when he saw it. The door was locked on the inside, but we put our shoulders to it and knocked it in. The window of the room was open, and beside the window, all huddled up, lay the body of a man in his nightdress. He was quite dead, and had been for some time, for his limbs were rigid and cold. When we turned him over, the boots recognized him at once as being the same gentleman who had engaged the room under the name of Joseph Stangerson. The cause of death was a deep stab in the left side, which must have penetrated the heart, and now— comes the strangest part of the affair. What do you suppose was above the murdered man? I felt a creeping of the flesh and a presentiment of coming horror even before Sherlock Holmes answered. The word Raish, written in letters of blood, he said. That was it, said Lestrade in an awestruck voice, and we were all silent for a while. There was something so methodical and so incomprehensible about the deeds of this unknown assassin that it imparted a fresh ghastliness to his crimes. My nerves, which were steady enough on the field of battle, tingled as I thought of it. "'The man was seen,' continued Lestrade. "'A milk-boy, passing on his way to the dairy, happened to walk down the lane which leads from the mews at the back of the hotel. He noticed that a ladder, which usually lay there, was raised against one of the windows of the second floor.' which was wide open. After passing, he looked back and saw a man descend the ladder. He came down so quietly and openly that the boy imagined him to be some carpenter or joiner at work in the hotel. He took no particular notice of him, beyond thinking in his own mind that it was early for him to be at work. He has an impression that the man was tall, had a reddish face, and was dressed in a long brownish coat. He must have stayed in the room some little time after the murder, for we found blood-stained water in the basin where he had washed his hands and marks on the sheets where he had deliberately wiped his knife. I glanced at Holmes on hearing the description of the murderer, which tailed so exactly with his own. There was, however, no trace of exultation or satisfaction upon his face. Did you find nothing in the room which could furnish a clue to the murderer? 
he asked. Nothing. Stangerson had Drebber's purse in his pocket, but it seemed that this was usual, as he did all the paying. There was eighty-odd pounds in it, but nothing had been taken. Whatever the motives of these extraordinary crimes, robbery is certainly not one of them. There were no papers or memoranda in the murdered man's pockets, except a single telegram, dated from Cleveland about a month ago, and containing the words, J.H. is in Europe. There was no name appended to this message. And there was nothing else? Holmes asked. Nothing of importance. The man's novel, with which he had read himself to sleep, was lying upon the bed, and his pipe was on a chair beside him. There was a glass of water on the table, and on the window sill a small chip ointment box containing a couple of pills. Sherlock Holmes sprang from his chair with an exclamation of delight. The last link! he cried exultantly. My case is complete. The two detectives stared at him in amazement. I have now in my hands my companion said confidently. All the threads which have formed such a tangle. There are, of course, details to be filled in, but I am as certain of all the main facts, from the time the Drebber parted from Stangerson at the station up to the discovery of the body of the latter, as if I had seen them with my own eyes. I will give you a proof of my knowledge. Could you lay your hands upon those pills? I have them, said Lestrade, producing a small white box. I took them and the purse and the telegram, intending to have them put in a place of safety at the police station. It was the merest chance my taking these pills, for I am bound to say that I do not attach any importance to them. Give them here, said Holmes. Now, doctor, turning to me, are those ordinary pills? They certainly were not. They were of a pearly grey colour, small, round, and almost transparent against the light. "'From their lightness and transparency, I should imagine that they are soluble in water,' I remarked. "'Precisely so,' answered Holmes. "'Now, would you mind going down and fetching that poor little devil of a terrier, which has been bad so long, and which the landlady wanted you to put out of its pain yesterday?' I went downstairs and carried the dog upstairs in my arms. Its laboured breathing and glazing eye showed that it was not far from its end— Indeed, his snow-white muzzle proclaimed that it had already exceeded the usual term of canine existence. I placed it upon a cushion on the rug. "'I will now cut one of these pills in two, said Holmes, and drawing his penknife, he suited the action to the word. "'One half we return into the box for future purposes. The other half I will place in this wine-glass, in which is a teaspoonful of water.' You perceive that our friend, the doctor, is right, and that it readily dissolves. This may be very interesting, said Lestrade, in the injured tone of one who suspects that he is being laughed at. I cannot see, however, what it has to do with the death of Mr. Joseph Stangerson. Patience, my friend, patience. You will find in time that it has everything to do with it. I shall now add a little milk to make the mixture palatable, and on presenting it to the dog, we find that he laps it up readily enough. As he spoke, he turned the contents of the wine glass into a saucer and placed it in front of the terrier, who speedily licked it dry. Sherlock Holmes's earnest demeanour had so far convinced us that we all sat in silence, watching the animal intently and expecting some startling effect. None such appeared, however. The dog continued to lie stretched upon the cushion, breathing in a laboured way, but apparently neither the better nor the worse for its draught. 
Holmes had taken out his watch, and as minute followed minute without result, an expression of the utmost chagrin and disappointment appeared upon his features. He gnawed his lip, drummed his fingers upon the table, and showed every other symptom of acute impatience. So great was his emotion that I felt sincerely sorry for him, while the two detectives smiled derisively, by no means displeased at this check which he had met. "'It can't be a coincidence,' he cried at last, springing from his chair and pacing wildly up and down the room. "'It is impossible that it should be mere coincidence. The very pills which I suspect in the case of Drebber are actually found after the death of Stangerson, and yet they are inert. What can it mean?' Surely my whole chain of reasoning cannot have been false. It is impossible. And yet this wretched dog is none the worse. Ah, I have it! I have it! With a perfect shriek of delight, he rushed to the box, cut the other pill in two, dissolved it, added milk, and presented it to the terrier. The unfortunate creature's tongue seemed hardly to have been moistened in it before it gave a convulsive shiver in every limb and lay as rigid and lifeless as if it had been struck by lightning. Sherlock Holmes drew a long breath and wiped the perspiration from his forehead. "'I should have more faith,' he said. "'I ought to know by this time that when a fact appears to be opposed to a long train of deductions, it invariably proves to be capable of bearing some other interpretation. Of the two pills in that box, one was of the most deadly poison, and the other was entirely harmless. I ought to have known that before I ever saw the box at all.' This last statement appeared to me to be so startling that I could hardly believe that he was in his sober senses. There was the dead dog, however, to prove that his conjecture had been correct. It seemed to me that the mists in my own mind were gradually clearing away, and I began to have a dim, vague perception of the truth. "'All this seems strange to you,' continued Holmes, "'because you failed at the beginning of the inquiry to grasp the importance of the single real clue which was presented to you.' I had the good fortune to seize upon that, and everything that has occurred since then has served to confirm my original supposition, and indeed was the logical sequence of it. Hence, things which have perplexed you and made the case more obscure have served to enlighten me and to strengthen my conclusions. It was a mistake to confound strangeness with mystery. The most commonplace crime is often the most mysterious, because it presents no new or special features from which deductions may be drawn. This murder would have been infinitely more difficult to unravel, had the body of the victim been simply found lying in the roadway, without any of those outre and sensational accompaniments which have rendered it remarkable. These strange details, far from making the case more difficult, have really had the effect of making it less so. Mr. Gregson, who had listened to this address with considerable impatience, could contain himself no longer. "'Look here, Mr. Sherlock Holmes,' he said. "'We are all ready to acknowledge that you are a smart man and that you have your own methods of working. We want something more than mere theory and preaching, though. It is a case of taking the man. I have made my case out, and it seems I was wrong. Young Carpentier could not have been engaged in the second affair.' Lestrade went after his man, Stangerson, and it appears he was wrong too. You have thrown out hints here and hints there, and seem to know more than we do, but the time has come when we feel that we have a right to ask you straight, how much do you know of the business? Can you name the man who did it? I cannot help feeling that Gregson is right, sir, remarked Lestrade. We have both tried, and we have both failed. You have remarked more than once since I have been in the room that you had all the evidence which you require. Surely you will not withhold it any longer. Any delay in arresting the assassin, 
I observed, might give him time to perpetrate some fresh atrocity. Thus pressed by us all, Holmes showed signs of irresolution. He continued to walk up and down the room with his head sunk on his chest and his brows drawn down, as was his habit when lost in thought. "'There will be no more murders,' he said at last, stopping abruptly and facing us. "'You can put that consideration out of the question. You have asked me if I know the name of the assassin. I do.' The mere knowing of his name is a small thing, however, compared with the power of laying our hands upon him. This, I expect, very shortly to do. I have good hopes of managing it through my own arrangements, but it is a thing which needs delicate handling, for we have a shrewd and desperate man to deal with, who is supported, as I have occasion to prove, by another who is as clever as himself. As long as this man has no idea that anyone can have a clue, there is some chance of securing him." but if he had the slightest suspicion, he would change his name and vanish in an instant among the four million inhabitants of this great city. Without meaning to hurt either of your feelings, I am bound to say that I consider these men to be more than a match for the official force, and that is why I have not asked your assistance. If I fail, I shall, of course, incur all the blame due to this omission, but that I am prepared for. At the present, I am ready to promise that the instant that I can communicate with you without endangering my own combinations, I shall do so. Gregson and Estrade seemed to be far from satisfied by this assurance, or by the depreciating allusion to the detective force. The former had flushed up to the roots of his flaxen hair, while the other's beady eyes glistened with curiosity and resentment. Neither of them had time to speak, however, before there was a tap at the door, and the spokesman of the street Arabs, young Wiggins, introduced his insignificant and unsavoury person. "'Please, sir,' he said, touching his forelock. "'I have the cab downstairs.' "'Good boy,' said Holmes blandly. "'Why don't you introduce this pattern at Scotland Yard?' he continued, taking a pair of steel handcuffs from a drawer. "'See how beautifully the spring works. They fasten in an instant.' "'The old pattern is good enough,' remarked Lestrade. "'if we can only find the man to put them on.' "'Very good, very good,' said Holmes, smiling. "'The cabman may as well help me with my boxes. "'Just ask him to step up, Wiggins.' "'I was surprised to find my companion speaking as though he was about to set out on a journey, "'since he had not said anything to me about it. "'There was a small portmanteau in the room, and this he pulled out and began to strap. "'He was busily engaged at it when the cabman entered the room. "'Just give me a help with this buckle, cabman.' he said, kneeling over his task and never turning his head. The fellow came forward with a somewhat sullen, defiant air, and put down his hands to assist. At that instant there was a sharp click, the jangling of metal, and Sherlock Holmes sprang to his feet again. "'Gentlemen,' he cried with flashing eyes, "'let me introduce you to Mr. Jefferson Hope, the murderer of Enoch Drebber and of Joseph Stangerson.' The whole thing occurred in a moment, so quickly that I had no time to realize it. I have a vivid recollection of that instant, of Holmes' triumphant expression and the ring of his voice, of the cabman's dazed, savage face as he glared at the glittering handcuffs, which had appeared as if by magic upon his wrists. For a second or two we might have been a group of statues. Then, in an inarticulate roar of fury, the prisoner wrenched himself free from Holmes' grasp and hurled himself through the window. Woodwork and glass gave way before him, but before he got quite through, Gregson, Lestrade, and Holmes sprang upon him like so many staghounds. 
He was dragged back into the room, and then commenced a terrific conflict. So powerful and so fierce was he, that the four of us were shaken off again and again. He appeared to have the convulsive strength of a man in an epileptic fit. His face and hands were terribly mangled by his passage through the glass, but loss of blood had no effect in diminishing his resistance. It was not until Lestrade succeeded in getting his hand inside his neckcloth and half strangling him that we made him realize that his struggles were of no avail, and even then we felt no security until we had pinioned his feet as well as his hands. That done, we rose to our feet, breathless and panting. "'We have his cab,' said Sherlock Holmes. "'It will serve to take him to Scotland Yard. And now, gentlemen,' he continued with a pleasant smile, "'we have reached the end of our little mystery.' You are very welcome to put any questions that you like to me now, and there is no danger that I will refuse to answer them. Part 2 The Country of the Saints Chapter 1 On the Great Alkali Plain In the central portion of the great North American continent, there lies an arid and repulsive desert, which for many a long year served as a barrier against the advancement of civilization. From the Sierra Nevada to Nebraska, and from the Yellowstone River in the north to the Colorado upon the south, is a region of desolation and silence. Nor is nature always in one mood throughout this grim district. It comprises snow-capped and lofty mountains and dark and gloomy valleys. There are swift-flowing rivers which dash through jagged canyons. There are enormous plains which in winter are white with snow, and in summer are grey with a saline alkali dust. They all preserve, however, the common characteristic of barrenness, inhospitality, and misery. There are no inhabitants of this land of despair. A band of Pawnees or of Blackfeet may occasionally traverse it in order to reach other hunting grounds, where the hardiest of the braves are glad to lose sight of those awesome plains and to find themselves once more upon their prairies. The coyote skulks among the scrub, the buzzard flaps heavily through the air, and the clumsy grizzly bear lumbers through the dark ravines and picks up such sustenance as it can amongst the rocks. These are the sole dwellers in the wilderness. In the whole world there can be no more dreary view than that of the northern slope of the Sierra Blanco. As far as the eye can reach stretches the great flat plainland, all dusted over with patches of alkali and intersected by clumps of the dwarfish chaparral bushes. On the extreme verge of the horizon lies a long chain of mountain peaks, with their rugged summits flecked with snow. In this great stretch of country there is no sign of life, nor of anything appertaining to life. There is no bird in the steeple blue heaven, no movement upon the dull grey earth. Above all, there is absolute silence. Listen as one may, there is no shadow of sound in all that mighty wilderness, nothing but silence, complete and heart-subduing silence. It has been said there is nothing appertaining to life upon the broad plain. That is, hardly true. Looking down from the Sierra Blanco, one sees a pathway traced out across the desert, which winds away and is lost in the extreme distance. It is rutted with wheels and trodden down by the feet of many adventurers. Here and there, there are scattered white objects which glisten in the sun and stand out against the dull deposit of alkali. Approach and examine them. They are bones." some large and coarse, others smaller and more delicate. The former have belonged to oxen, and the latter to men. For fifteen hundred miles one may trace their ghastly caravan route by these scattered remains of those who had fallen by the wayside. Looking down upon this very scene, there stood upon the 4th of May, 1847, a solitary traveller. 
His appearance was much that he might have been the very genius or demon of the region. An observer would have found it difficult to say whether he was nearer to forty or to sixty. His face was lean and haggard, and the brown parchment-like skin was drawn tightly over the projecting bones. His long brown hair and beard were all flecked and dashed with white. His eyes were sunken in his head and burned with an unnatural luster, while the hand which grasped his rifle was hardly more fleshly than that of a skeleton. As he stood, he leaned upon his weapon for support, and yet his tall figure and the massive framework of his bones suggested a wiry and vigorous constitution. His gaunt face, however, and his clothes, which hung so baggily over his shriveled limbs, proclaimed what it was that gave him that senile and decrepit appearance. The man was dying, dying from hunger and from thirst. He had toiled painfully down the ravine and on to this little elevation in the vain hope of seeing some sign of water. Now the great salt plain stretched before his eyes, and the distant belt of savage mountains, without a sign anywhere of plant or tree, which might indicate the presence of moisture. In all that broad landscape there was no gleam of hope. North and east and west he looked with wild, questioning eyes, and then he realized that his wanderings had come to an end, and that there, on that barren crag, he was about to die. "'Why not here?' as well as in a feather bed twenty years hence. He muttered as he seated himself in the shelter of a boulder. Before sitting down, he had deposited upon the ground his useless rifle, and also a large bundle tied up in a grey shawl, which he had carried slung over his right shoulder. It appeared to be somewhat too heavy for his strength, for in lowering it, it came down on the ground with some little violence. Instantly there broke from the grey parcel a little moaning cry, and from it there protruded a small, scarred face, with very bright brown eyes, and two little speckled, dimpled fists. "'You've hurt me,' said a childish voice reproachfully. "'Have I, though?' the man answered penitently. "'I didn't go for to do it.' As he spoke, he unwrapped the grey shawl, and extricated a pretty little girl of about five years of age, whose dainty shoes and small pink frock, with its little linen apron, all bespoke a mother's care. The child was pale and wan, but her healthy arms and legs showed that she had suffered less than her companion. "'How is it now?' he answered anxiously, for she was still rubbing the towsy golden curls which covered the back of her head. "'Kiss it and make it well,' she said with perfect gravity, shoving the injured part up to him. "'That's what mother used to do. Where's mother?' "'Mother's gone. I guess you'll see her before long.' "'Gone, huh?' said the little girl. "'Funny she didn't say goodbye. "'She most always did if she was just going over to Auntie's for tea, "'and now she's been away three days. "'Say, it's awful dry, ain't it? "'Ain't there no water, nor nothing to eat?' "'No, there's nothing, dearie. "'You'll just need to be patient a while, and then you'll be all right. "'Put your head up again me like that, and then you'll feel bullier. "'It ain't easy to talk when your lips is like leather.' I guess I'd best let you know how the cards lie. What's that you've got? Pretty things, fine things, cried the little girl enthusiastically, holding up two glittering fragments of mica. When we goes back to home, I'll give them to Brother Bob. You'll see prettier things than them soon, said the man confidently. You just wait a bit. I was going to tell you, though. You remember when we left the river? Oh, yes. Well, we reckon we'd strike another river soon, you see. 
There was something wrong. Compass or map or something. And it didn't turn up. Water ran out. Just except a little drop for the likes of you and... And... And you couldn't wash yourself, interrupted his companion gravely, staring up at his grimy visage. No, nor drink. And Mr. Bender, he, he was the first to go, and then Indian Pete, and then Mrs. McGregor, and then Johnny Hones, and then, dearie, your mother. Then mother's a debtor, too? cried the little girl, dropping her face in a pinafore and sobbing bitterly. Yes. They all went except you and me. Then I thought there was some chance of water in this direction, so I heaved you over my shoulder and we tramped it together. It don't seem as though we've improved matters. There's an almighty small chance for us now. Do you mean that we're going to die too? Asked the child, checking her sobs and raising her tear-stained face. I guess that's about the size of it. Why didn't you say so before? She said, laughing gleefully. You gave me such a fright. Why, of course, now as long as we die, we'll be with Mother again. Yes, you will, dearie. And you too? I'll tell her how awful good you've been. I'll bet she meets us at the door of heaven with a big pitcher of water and a whole lot of buckwheat cakes hot and toasted on both sides like Bob and me was fond of. How long will it be first? I don't know. Not very long. The man's eyes were fixed upon the northern horizon. In the blue vault of the heaven, there had appeared three little specks which increased in size every moment. So rapidly did they approach. They speedily resolved themselves into three large brown birds, which circled over the head of the two wanderers, and then settled upon some rocks which overlooked them. They were buzzards, the vultures of the west, whose coming is the forerunner of death. "'Cocks and hands!' cried the little girl gleefully, pointing at their ill-omened forms and clapping her hands to make them rise. "'Say, did God make this country?' "'Of course he did,' said her companion, rather startled by this unexpected question. "'He made the country down in Illinois, and he made the Missouri,' the little girl continued." I guess somebody else made the country in these parts. It's not nearly so well done. They forgot the water and the trees. What would you think of offering up a prayer? The man asked diffidently. It ain't night yet, she answered. It don't matter. It ain't quite regular, but you won't mind that, you bet. You say over them ones they used to say every night in the wagon when we was on the plains. Why don't you say some yourself? The child asked with wondering eyes. I disremember them, he answered. I ain't said none since I was half the height of that gun. I guess it's never too late. You say them out and I'll stand by and come in on the courses. Then you'll need to kneel down, and me too, she said, laying the shawl out for that purpose. You got to put your hands up like this. It makes you feel kind of good. It was a strange sight, had there been anything but the buzzards to see it. Side by side on the narrow shoal knelt the two wanderers, the little prattling child and the reckless, hardened adventurer. Her chubby face and his haggard, angular visage were both turned up to the cloudless heaven in heartfelt entreaty to that dread being with whom they were face to face, 
while the two voices, the one thin and clear, the other deep and harsh, united in the entreaty for mercy and forgiveness. The prayer finished, they resumed their seat in the shadow of the boulder, until the child fell asleep, nestling upon the broad breast of her protector. He watched over her slumber for some time, but nature proved to be too strong for him. For three days and three nights he had allowed himself neither rest nor repose. Slowly the eyelids drooped over the tired eyes, and the head sunk lower and lower upon the breast, until the man's grizzled beard was mixed with the gold tresses of his companion, and both slept the same deep and dreamless slumber. Had the wanderer remained awake for another half-hour, a strange sight would have met his eyes. Far away on the extreme verge of the alkali plain, there rose up a little spray of dust, very slight at first, and hardly to be distinguished from the midst of the distance, but gradually growing higher and broader, until it formed a solid, well-defined cloud. This cloud continued to increase in size, until it became evident that it could only be raised by a great multitude of moving creatures. In more fertile spots, the observer would have come to the conclusion that one of these great herds of bison, which grazed upon the prairie, was approaching him. This was obviously impossible in these arid wilds. As a whirl of dust drew nearer to the solitary bluff upon which the two castaways were reposing, the canvas-covered tilts of wagons and the figures of armed horsemen began to show up through the haze, and the apparition revealed itself as being a great caravan upon his journey for the west. But what a caravan! When the head of it had reached the base of the mountains, the rear was not yet visible on the horizon. Right across the enormous plain stretched a straggling array. Wagons and carts, men on horseback and men on foot, innumerable women who staggered along under burdens, and children who toddled beside the wagons or peeped out from under the white coverings. This was evidently no ordinary party of immigrants, but rather some nomad people who had been compelled from the stress of circumstances to seek themselves a new country. There rose through the clean air a confused clattering and rumbling from this great mass of humanity, with a creaking of wheels and a neighing of horses. Loud as it was, it was not sufficient to rouse the two tired wayfarers above them. At the head of the column there rode a score or more of grave, iron-faced men, clad in sombre homespun garments and armed with rifles. On reaching the base of the bluff they halted, and held a short council among themselves. "'The wells are to my right, my brothers,' said one hard-lipped, clean-shaven man with grisly hair. "'To the right of the Sierra Blanco, so we shall reach the Rio Grande,' said another. "'Fear not for water,' cried a third. "'He who could draw from the rocks will not abandon his chosen people.' "'Amen! Amen!' responded the whole party. They were about to resume their journey when one of the youngest and keenest eyed uttered an exclamation and pointed up at the rugged crag above them. From its summit there fluttered a little wisp of pink, showing up hard and bright against the grey rocks behind. At the sight, there was a general reining up of horses and unslinging of guns, while fresh horsemen came galloping up to reinforce the vanguard. The word Redskin was on every lip. "'There can't be any number of engines here,' said the elderly man, who appeared to be in command. "'We have passed the Pawnees, and there are no other tribes until we cross the great mountains.' "'Shall I go forward and see, Brother Stangerson?' asked one of the band. "'And I, and I.' cried a dozen voices. "'Leave your horses below, and we will await you here,' the elder answered. In a moment, the young fellows had dismounted, fastened their horses, and were ascending the precipitous slope which led up to the object which had excited their curiosity. They advanced rapidly and noiselessly, with the confidence and dexterity of practiced scouts. 
The watchers from the plain below could see them flit from rock to rock until their figures stood out against the skyline. The young man who had first given the alarm was leading them. Suddenly his followers saw him throw up his hands as though overcome with astonishment, and on joining him they were affected in the same way by the sight which met their eyes. On the little plateau which crowned the barren hill there stood a single giant boulder, and against this boulder there lay a tall man, long-bearded and hard-featured, but of an excessive thinness. His placid face and regular breathing showed that he was fast asleep. Beside him lay a little child, and her round white arms encircling his brown sinewy neck, and her golden-haired head resting upon the breast of his velveteen tunic. Her rosy lips were parted, showing the regular line of snow-white teeth within, and a playful smile played over her infantile features. Her plump little white legs, terminating white socks and neat shoes with shining buckles, offered a strange contrast to the long shriveled members of her companion. On the ledge of rock above this strange couple there stood three solemn buzzards, who, at the sight of the newcomers, uttered raucous screams of disappointment and flapped sullenly away. The cries of the foul birds awoke the two sleepers, who stared about them in bewilderment. The man staggered to his feet and looked down upon the plain, which had been so desolate when sleep had overtaken him, and which was now traversed by this enormous body of men and of beasts. His face assumed an expression of incredulity as he gazed, and he passed his bony hand over his eyes. "'It's what they call delirium, I guess,' he muttered. The child stood beside him, holding on to the skirt of his coat and said nothing, but looked all round her with a wondering, questioning gaze of childhood. The rescuing party were speedily able to convince the Duke castaways that their appearance was no delusion. One of them seized the little girl and hoisted her upon his shoulder, while two others supported her gaunt companion and assisted him towards the wagons. "'My name is John Ferrier,' the wanderer explained. "'Me and that little one are all that's left of twenty people.' The rest is all dead of thirst and hunger away down in the south. Is she your child? asked someone. I guess she is now, the other cried defiantly. She's mine cause I saved her. No man will take her from me. She's a Lucy Farrier from this day on. Who are you, though? He continued, glancing with curiosity at his stalwart, sunburned rescuers. There seems to be a powerful lot of you. Nigh upon ten thousand said one of the young men. We are the persecuted children of God, the chosen of the angel Morona. I've never heard tell of him, said the wanderer. He appears to have chosen a fair crowd of ye. Do not jest at that which is sacred, said the other sternly. We are those who believe in those sacred writings drawn in Egyptian letters on plates of beaten gold which were handed unto the holy Joseph Smith at Palmyra. We have come from Nauvoo, in the state of Illinois, and we have founded our temple. We have come to seek a refuge from the violent man and from the godless, even though it be the heart of the desert. The name of Nauvoo evidently recalled recollections to John Ferrier. I see, he said. You are the Mormons. We are the Mormons, answered his companions with one voice. And where are you going? We do not know. The hand of God is leading us under the person of our prophet. You must come before him. He shall say what is to be done with you. They had reached the base of the hill by this time, and were surrounded by crowds of the pilgrims, pale-faced, meek-looking women, strong, laughing children, and anxious, earnest-eyed men. Many were the cries of astonishment and of commiseration which arose from them when they perceived the youth of one of the strangers and the destitution of the other. 
Their escort did not halt, however, being pushed on, followed by a great crowd of Mormons, until they reached a wagon which was conspicuous for its great size and for the gaudiness and smartness of its appearance. Six horses were yoked to it, whereas the others were furnished with two, or at most, four apiece. Beside the driver, there sat a man who could not have been more than thirty years of age, but whose massive head and resolute expression marked him as a leader. He was reading a brown-backed volume, but as the crowd approached, he laid it aside and listened attentively to an account of the episode. Then he turned to the two castaways. "'If we take you with us,' he said in solemn words, "'it can only be as believers in our own creed. We shall have no wolves in our fold.' Better far that your bones should bleach in this wilderness than that you should prove to be that little speck of decay which would in time corrupt the whole fruit. Will you come with us on these terms? Guess I'll come with you on any terms, said Ferrier, with such emphasis that the grave elders could not restrain a smile. The leader alone retained his stern, impressive expression. Take him, Brother Stangerson, he said. Give him food and drink, and the child likewise. Let it be your task also to teach him our holy creed. We have delayed long enough. Forward. On. On to Zion. On to Zion! cried the crowd of Mormons, and the words rippled down the long caravan, passing from mouth to mouth until they died away in a dull murmur in the far distance. With a cracking of whips and a creaking of wheels, the great wagons got into motion, and soon the whole caravan was winding along once more. The elder to whose care the two waifs had been committed led them to his wagon, where a meal was already awaiting them. "'You shall remain here,' he said. "'In a few days you will have recovered from your fatigues. In the meantime, remember now and forever you are of our religion. Brigham Young has said it.' and he has spoken in the voice of Joseph Smith, which is the voice of God. All right, leaving you on a bit of a cliffhanger. What is going on? How did Sherlock Holmes just become a Western? Don't worry, don't worry. It all ties back together, and you'll get more of the story next week. Uh, until then, remember to share the podcast, because doing that is a fantastic way to just spread the word, and hey, it's a free audiobook. Why wouldn't you Why wouldn't you want to share that with your friend? They'd probably really appreciate it. This is the season of giving. Speaking of which, I uh, want you to be paying attention. We're going to be having a special episode here coming up soon in honor of Christmas. I'm super excited about this, and uh, yeah, so you'll need to stay tuned for that. Again, if you're interested in helping edit the podcast, I would love to, to have somebody uh, help me with that. You can just let me know on otherworldaudiobooks at gmail.com. Or if you're interested in uh, helping me hire somebody to do it, uh, just go ahead and go over to patreon.com slash anotherworldaudiobooks. Both of those are, are just focused on bringing you more high-quality, free audiobooks. So if you want to help out the podcast, I'd really appreciate your help. But if you just want to listen, all I ask is that you just share the podcast with somebody this week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.